You know, as you look out uh, across the church in America today, uh, you no doubt have seen, as I have, a number of books and conferences and revivals and retreats all aimed at rekindling the fire and the fervency of your faith. They come in various forms, and sometimes they come even addressing it from a more of a negative standpoint, addressing burnout. That's the term that we may often throw around today. Burnout in your spiritual life or lack of fire in your spiritual life. And at the very least, the sheer volume of material that's out there on that subject probably speaks to the constant need that we face as Christians to address that issue in our life. The constant, the, 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 the constant challenge, if you will, to stir up the zeal that we should have for Christ and for His kingdom. But I've become convinced through the years, just looking at all those things, that the vast majority of them, as I've examined them, as, I, as I've participated in some of them, the vast majority of them fall short in all of their efforts because they miss the key principle that is given to us out of the New Testament with the intention of stirring up our fervency and our zeal for Christ. It's not a hidden principle. It's found throughout the Scriptures, and it's not limited either to the New Testament. We've already met, as we studied Luke, at least two saints that would arise out of the Old Testament era who represented this key principle of stirring up their faith. In Luke chapter 2, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. It was the focus of his life. Later on, there's a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, when she comes into the temple and Simeon has Jesus, the baby Jesus, in his arms. It says, She came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Even later, in Luke's Gospel, we will meet a man from Arimathea, a man named Joseph, a city of the Jews, Luke writes, a man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. And you see this repeated again and again in the, in the lives of these godly people. And as we've looked at now for a number of weeks, even in our study of Luke, Paul says in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven, from whom we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He urges the Corinthian church that the grace of God should have them, quote, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.28, So Christ also, having, offered once, uh, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for Him. In fact, that's precisely what the gospel should teach us. The gospel should teach us to eagerly wait, to long for and to look for our final redemption. Listen to this out of Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, he writes, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us 
to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Folks, that doctrine absolutely saturates the New Testament. It runs through every book and it's in the background of every page. And yet it's so slightly emphasized today. It is such a minor tone in the opus of Christianity, if you will. Magnum opus. The big picture. We should take note, though, not only of the godly examples of the Old Testament saints, not only of the New Testament examples, but even of the examples through church history. I mean, you just think about the great eras of church history, those times when there was an explosion, for example, of hymn writers, the 1700s, 1800s in our own country. As the hymn writers uh, uh, float out so many of their great hymns, and the vast majority of them end in their last refrain, in their last stanza with what? With a heavenly view. Most of them end with some sort of verse that talks about Return, the return of Christ or seeing Christ face to face. It was the perspective of all the great saints through church history. And in a church today that is so desperately in search of something that will help them maintain their fervency and maintain their desire and their zeal for Christ, the answer is surprisingly hard to miss and yet surprisingly missed so often. It is the anxious gaze upon the return of Christ. It's the anxious, eager longing that we fix our eyes upon the return of Christ. You know, that's the key truth that we come to today as we look at Luke chapter 12, continuing our study in this great book now for a couple of years. We've come to this chapter And Jesus begins a section here in which He will focus on the vital necessity of being ready and eager for His coming. And as we look at the passage today, I want us to look as Jesus presents three incentives that should stir our hearts to this eagerness, three incentives that should focus our eyes on the return of our Savior. I'm going to read the section for you and then we're going to come back and look at it in detail. He says in verse 35, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch, or even in the third, and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us, or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. 
Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, My master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave, who knew his master's will, and did not get ready or act in accord with his will, will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it, and committed deeds worthy of a flogging, will receive but few. For everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Three incentives come out of this passage for us that are intended to fix our longing and our gaze on the return of Christ. The first one is given to us in verses 35 through 38, and that is the command for preparation. The command for preparation for Christ's coming. You may remember Jesus had just finished admonishing His disciples to be rich toward God back in verse 21 and 22 all the way down through 34, elaborating on that. This was essentially, you may remember, a call for us as believers to store up our treasures in heaven rather than on earth. To put on generosity, as Jesus says, and to give up greed and worry that would cause us to hoard things for ourselves in this life. You know, but as you read that, inevitably there will be someone who hears those kind of things and who understands what Jesus says. And think to themselves, you know what, I, I, I see that, I understand that, but it's just a little bit too abstract for me. It's just a little bit too hard for me to really think about treasures in heaven. I mean, I know in the end God's going to save me, and then really that's all that matters, and I'll be content with just that. I'll just be happy just to make it to heaven, and, and I will have then the luxury of ignoring Christ's commands to do anything to invest in heavenly treasures. And they can even couch it as sort of a, a pseudo-humility. that They really don't even, wouldn't even demand very much whenever they get to heaven. But really all it is is just an excuse for them not to obey their master. It's just an excuse for them to live a faithless life just for the here and now and for the present. Because they have not disciplined themselves to have the heavenly mindedness that God has demanded. It's an excuse to ignore the sacrifices in this life for which God promises reward in the next. And it's just the fleshing out of the short-sighted faith that will not give up its own indulgences. Well, Jesus turns His attention to that mindset in verse 35. And flowing out of everything that He says about heavenly rewards and the riches that await us there, He commands in verse 35 that we diligently prepare for His coming. This isn't a suggestion. This is an insistence. This is an urging. Be dressed in readiness, He says, and keep your lamps lit. Be like men, He says, who are waiting for their master when He returns from the feast. You see the imperatives there. Keep, uh, be dressed. Keep your lamps. Be like. They're warnings, if you will. They're warnings for us to give up uh, 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 all the things that distract us and to give our attention to something that we would otherwise neglect. 
because it's out of sight and therefore out of mind. And Jesus makes his point here by painting the image of a wealthy master who's gone away to a wedding feast. Now, I read a lot of stuff this week, a lot of opinions on what this wedding feast is and, and where the master is and if this master is Jesus, where he is and all that. And I really don't think it matters. I don't think the point of the, of the parable is the wedding feast. The point is the return. And the wedding feast is just simply given because in ancient Near East times, these weddings could last anywhere from a couple of days up to a week, and it wasn't set when you went. You sort of went and you sort of just celebrated until all of the the wine and all of the other stuff ran out, and then you went home. And so the wedding is just given because it's something that has a lot of variables in it. And so the master has gone away to a wedding feast, and he's coming back at an unexpected time. That's the point. And so while the, the master's away... The servants wait, and everything they do is with the thought that their master could return at any moment, that this wedding feast could come to an end at any moment, and that he could come walking home. And so no matter what they're doing, no matter what the servants are doing, the preparation for his coming is always on their mind. And that's the mindset that Jesus demands of you and I. He demands that we set our attention in a focused way on his return. That it's not the place of just the super spiritual. It's not the place of just the afflicted who have not much to look forward to in this life. It's not the place just of the aged who are inevitably approaching that more quickly maybe than the rest of us. This is the approach of every believer to in a decided way fix their hope on the return of Christ. Jesus commands here, He says, be dressed in readiness. Literally, In the original language, it says, let your loins be girded. It's unfortunate, I think, that the NAS paraphrases that there and says, be dressed in readiness, because the literal wording carries so much vivid imagery. It's a metaphor for the long flowing robes that are worn in the Middle East. They're worn in order to keep the sun off of the skin and some of the the elements that might blast against you. But during times of vigorous or sudden activity, the Jews, the people in the ancient Near East, would not want the the, the robes flowing around their feet because it might trip them up. And so they would pull those robes up and they would tuck them down into their their belt. That's the girding up of your loins. You could read about it in Exodus chapter 12 whenever they're getting ready to flee away from the Egyptian army and they're getting ready to celebrate the Passover and leave out the next morning. Uh, He says to them, gird up your loins. And pull up your own flowing robes so that you're not tripped or hindered in any way so that you can act immediately as soon as you wake up or as soon as the daylight comes. Look with me over at 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to show you a place where the same words are used, but I think they give us more insight here. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. Peter having just finished this grand sentence from from verse 3 all the way through verse 12 on salvation, he turns to now the implications of everything that he says. He says in verse 13, therefore, based on this great salvation that's prepared for us, by the way, just looking back, uh, I think it is in in verse 4, he says uh, Christ is a living hope. He says in verse 3, the resurrection, living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
Verse 4, to obtain, obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's the salvation he's talking about. He's talking about the salvation that's reserved for us, that's, that's bound up for us, and it is promised and guaranteed for us as a legitimate hope and expectation because of the resurrection of Christ. And he says in verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Literally the same words, gird up the loins of your mind. Except he adds the, the word mind there. Gird up the loins of your mind, he says. Keep sober in spirit and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, the ideas of these flowing robes here. But particularly, he brings out the issue of the mind, and this is a reference to those wandering thoughts that may come in, that may distract you, that may trip you, that may cause you to stumble. All of those wandering thoughts and goals and desires and, and, and uh, indulgences, all those things that just may flow around, that may ultimately trip you up. He calls for us to pull in all of those thoughts. Don't let them just flow freely in your mind. Don't let them just, your mind just wander here and there. You should discipline your mind, he's saying. You should fix your mind completely. Not partly, not part-time, not occasionally. But the goal of every believer is to discipline themselves so that their mind is in an unwavering fashion fixed on the hope to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It makes me think of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul says a good soldier doesn't entangle himself with the affairs of this world so that he can show and prove to his uh, superior officer that he is living a life worthy. Matthew 13, 22 talks about the cares of the world choking out the Word ultimately in the life of a believer, but it can happen also, excuse me, life of an unbeliever, but it can happen also in the life of a believer. The cares of the world, the entanglements of the world, the wandering thoughts of the world can trip you up from what God desires you to have. He adds these other words, keep sober. It's literally a word for sobriety, the uh, abstaining, if you will, from the intoxicating influence of wine. But here it refers to your mind being completely clear, completely in control and in good judgment. Keeping away from the things that would intoxicate your focus and cloud your mind. It, it speaks of the Christian being in charge of his priorities. Unintoxicated, if you will, by the allurements of the world. All of these things, he says, those, those are the things that you have to do if you're going to accomplish what, what the second half of the verse says to fix your hope completely on the grace. You can't do that. You cannot live a life of fixed anticipation and hope. You can't live the life of Simeon and of Anna and of Joseph of Arimathea and the life that Paul says that we ought to live as believers. You can't, you can't fully live out the implications of the gospel that Paul mentions in Titus chapter 2. You can't do any of that if you're not willing to draw in these wandering thoughts and to clear your mind of all the desires that cloud and intoxicate your thinking. Do all of these things. Gather in your thoughts and settle your priorities so that you're completely and fully in a settled way with no more variation setting your mind on the return of Christ. Grace, he says, that will be brought to you. The ultimate manifestation 
of God's salvation. We're not talking about streets of gold. We're not talking about seeing your relatives. Those are things that are commonly thrown out in our culture as related to heaven. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the full manifestation of your salvation. That is the total release from sin. When we see Christ face to face and we become just like Him. You know, that's what what Romans chapter 8 says, that as believers we groan over. It says we groan as we look at the corruption of this world. Creation itself, in fact, groans. And we groan along with it, it says, the text says, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. That's because we've already experienced the redemption of our souls. We've already been remade and renewed from within. We have now Christ living within us and we have uh, been inheritance, inheritors of, Second Peter chapter 1 says, the divine nature. But we haven't yet inherited that imperishable body. Our souls have already been tra- changed and converted and transformed and they now will live eternally by God's grace, but we haven't yet experienced that body that will live that way. And until then, the Scripture says we groan because there's a disconnect, there's an inconsistency because we, as Paul says, after the inner man comply with the law of God and yet after the outer man we still see the law of sin at work in our members. And it grieves us. And it grieves us all the more whenever we take time to fix our hope and contemplate the day when we will have bodies that are no more like that. I think it's interesting that the church began with a gathering of believers watching the ascension of Christ. And God's will is that we never change from that position. Acts chapter 1 verse 11 The book of Acts gives us the history of the church and it begins with a story of disciples looking up to heaven. Peter's first sermons in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3 have in them, woven into them, this theme of the return of Christ and the restoration of all things as he says in chapter 3. Again and again and again. And as I mentioned to you earlier, not only in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, look over at Hebrews chapter 11. We see Old Testament saints who had a fixed hope on heavenly glory. Hebrews 11, verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place in which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder our God. You know, Abraham wasn't trying to build a city. He wasn't pulling stones together. He was looking beyond these things that he saw in his daily life. And he was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Look down at verse 13. Speaking of, uh, of those uh, heirs of Abraham, it says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance... And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, 
If they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Later on in the chapter, it says, verse 35, women receive back the dead, they're dead by resurrections, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonments, and they were stoned, and they were sawn in two, they were tempted, and they were put to death with the sword. And they went about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. Verse 39, all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what is promised, because God had provided something better for us. Something better. Something much better than this world could ever give. And then, of course, in chapter 12, the greatest example is Christ Himself. You remember back in Luke chapter 9, we saw this in Luke 9, 51, where it says that Jesus fixed His hope, Luke 9, 51, He fixed His eyes to go to Jerusalem. He fixed His eyes to go to Jerusalem. You know why He did that? Not because He was eager for the crucifixion. Because He knew that in order to experience the glories that God had for Him, He had to go through that trial. But His eyes, being fixed on Jerusalem, were fixed there because He anticipated the glory that would come. You say, how do you know that? Because Luke, uh, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. It says in 12.1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that is the, the other believers that He's talked about in chapter 11 who've given witness to this kind of faith, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. You know what? We fix our eyes on Christ. We fix our eyes on Christ, not only anticipating His return, but also remembering His example, who for the joy that was set before Him, despite the suffering of the cross, despite all the sacrifice that He had to make in this life, despite everything that obedience to God meant in this life, never set his eyes on this world, but always kept his eyes on the joy set before him. One more passage over in 1 John, one that I reference a lot because it's such a profound truth. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. <clears throat> John says there, Beloved, now we are the children of God, And it's not yet appeared, it's not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know when He appears we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. A fixed hope. We we are the children of God, He says there at the beginning of verse 2. That is, by God's nature, by God's grace, we have a new nature. By new birth, we have now the godly desires. And it's not, it's not yet appeared what we shall be. We are indeed the children of God, but it's not been fully manifest. We have, 
with this new nature within us, but it's not yet been fully seen, he says. It's not yet appeared. The inner nature is still veiled, if you will, in the fallen bodily flesh. He says, though, but when he appears, our inner desires for holiness will be perfectly fulfilled in outward perfection. And that longing and that desire and the person who fixes their focus on that and all the pollutes and all that keeps us from that purity is repeatedly put out of your mind. He girds up his wandering thoughts and his priorities. He dresses himself in readiness. John says that hope purifies. It purifies. It purifies your life. It stirs up your zeal. It, it, it renews your fire. It deals with anything that would ever come close to burnout in your life. Back over to Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, gird up the loins. Be dressed in readiness, if you will. And he also says, keep your lamps lit. This would be the Mideastern lamps of those days that were something like a deep bowl of oil that would have a a snout coming out and you'd drop a little wick in there and and you would keep the lamp burning by completely, I'm continually filling it up with oil. Again, there's lots of written on this. What is the oil? What is the thing that you have to keep pouring in your life? Let me tell you, it's anything. It's anything that will feed your spiritual life. The point is not to find the one secret oil, the one secret ingredient. The point is to keep everything prepared, to do whatever you have to do, to keep ready for His return. You know, I was just reading some things this week just on the return of Christ and things that must be done in light of His return, the things that the Scripture admonishes. And I think we could just benefit just by looking through those things and just hearing from the Scripture what is admonished to us to keep in mind. Things that Scripture calls us to give heed to and pay attention to. I think all of them make up the oil. For example, prayer. Jesus tells His disciples in Luke 21, He says, Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, that the day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. Keep in prayer, He says in the next verse. Uh, excuse me, keep on alert at all times and praying so that you might have strength. 1 Peter 4.7 says it in a more concise way. He says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer. You know what? The end is coming. And because the end is coming, you need to be prayerful. Not only that, you need to feed on the Word. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise men, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. To the church at Sardis, Jesus gives this sober warning. Wake up, He says. Strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in My sight. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, he says, and you will not know at what hour I come to you. Remember the things that you've heard. Remember the will of God. Seek to know the will of God. And of course, there's Paul's most solemn warning about Timothy's ministry. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I solemnly charge you 
in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and His kingdom. He's saying, look, I want to tell you something in light of the return of Christ. In light of the fact that He's going to return and that He's going to judge, in light of His glorious appearing, I want to make one solemn charge to you, Timothy. He says, preach the word. Preach the word, he says, in season and out of season, reprove, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to tickle their ears, he says, it will accumulate teachers in accordance to their own desires and turn away from the truth. You want to know what to do in light of the return of Christ? You want to know what to do in light of the fact that He's coming to judge again and to establish His kingdom? Keep diligent in prayer and continue to cling to the Word because people will turn away from the truth. You know, there's one more thing I found as I studied this week. One more thing, one more area in which we're admonished to pay attention to in light of the return of Christ. And that is to stay close to the fellowship and mutual edification of the church. You know, it's popular today to think that it doesn't matter that the church is somehow some sort of optional part of your Christian life. That somehow you can be the lone ranger and all that matters is as long as you are living out the spiritual life in your home and in your personal life, the church doesn't matter. You know what? God would say that is absolutely wrong. That is an evidence of people turning away from the truth in the latter times. Proverbs 18.1 gives us a warning. The man who separates himself, it says, seeks his own desire and rages against all sound wisdom. You separate yourself out. You think that you don't need other people. You are seeking your own desire, not God's desires, and you're raging against all sound wisdom. Listen to this. This is a verse I read this week, Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider, he says, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And what does it say? All the more as you see the day drawing near. You want to know what to do in the light of the return of Christ? You want to know whether or not your, your lamp is, is lit? You want to know whether or not you're dressed in readiness? You want to know whether or not you're fulfilling the command of Christ and eagerly setting your hope? You will know by your involvement in the church. You will all the more, with more and more eagerness, you will want to come together into the mutual edification and accountability of the body of Christ. Charles Bridges, who wrote a great uh, commentary on the book of Proverbs, had a worthy quote here, I think, in terms of a man that separates himself. I thought it would be worthy to read. He says, The unsteady professor has no spiritual home. No church is sound enough for him. None wholly molded to his taste. Like the wandering bird, he's always on the wing. Any one place is too straight for him. The accustomed food, even though coming down from heaven, is... Quotes Numbers 21, loathed as light bread in reference to the manna. His vitiated appetite leaves him often on the Sabbath morning, undecided whom to hear, his own will being his, own, his only guide. And he's anxious to hear from all, and as a result, he learns from none. Always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. In his self-willed delusion, the form and the substance of the church is destroyed. It's not a few wandering sheep, but a fold and a shepherd Not a heap of loose, scattered stones, but the stones cemented and fitted into their several places, and the building thus being fitted together grows into a holy temple of God, Ephesians 2.21. The church is terrible 
not in her single members, but as an army of banners, close in rank, where each soldier keeps his own place. The individual profession, in the stead of collective unity, is a purely schismatic spirit, the essence of pride and selfishness. You want to know what? You want to keep your loins girded? You want to follow that pattern of being ready for the day? You want to have the benefits of that purifying influence? You need to gird up the wandering thoughts and desires of your life that entangle you. You need to stir up your zeal and your fire for Christ. You need to be prepared as Jesus demands. And if you're going to do all of that, you've got to focus your disciplined attention to prayer, to the Word of God, and to His church. Back over in Luke chapter 12. For those who've properly fixed their hope, for those who have their priorities set, their eager anticipation on the return of Christ, Jesus gives a surprising twist now to the story. He says in verse 37, Blessed are those slaves whom the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly I say to you that He will gird Himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. This is where the parable breaks with the world and the customs that we commonly know. Because in this world, the master doesn't return and wrap the apron around himself in order to serve a meal to his servants. But Jesus is speaking of his great delight and his great joy at finding servants who are ready for him. As a result of his joy, Unlike natural and earthly and worldly masters, His return won't mean more sacrifice and more labor on our part. It'll mean being blessed. It would be the right expectation of any servant in the worldly sense that having disciplined himself to stay alert and stay prepared, that when the master returned, his discipline and attentiveness would have to continue so that he would worry himself to make sure that his master got everything he needed once he walked through the front door. Jesus says, that's not what I'm talking about. At his return for us, it means rest. At his return for us, it means being served by him. At his return for us, it means we recline at his table and we're showered by his love. We're not meant to take our ease in this life. We're not meant to recline in this life. This isn't the time for that. It's not our place of rest. This is our place of vigilance, attentiveness, constant preparation for action. This is our place of strenuous effort, strenuous action. And the rest comes when our Savior returns. Until then, we keep our lamps lit by the fire of His Word, by the fire of His church, by the fire of His fellowship through prayer. Those who don't heed that command, Jesus has another incentive for you. The second one we see here. Those that do not stir their hearts, keep their lamps lit, Jesus gives a warning in verse 39 through 40, the warning of presumption at His return. 
We saw the command for preparation. This is the warning of presumption. And the image now changes to that of a burglary. But it's a different image still serving the same purpose. Jesus says, be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You to be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You know, I looked at the FBI website this week. They have a crime clock. And it says on their crime clock that a burglary takes place every 14 seconds in this country. And it says that in a, in a room with this many people, a group of this size, that statistically speaking, there will be six or seven homes represented in this building that will be burglarized this year. I want to ask you a question. If you knew that you were one of those homes, what would you do different when you went home today? If you knew with certainty that you were one of the six or seven homes that were going to be burglarized this year, but you did not know when, would it change the way that you live? I know it would me. Just the certainty of knowing that it will happen without question. Jesus is saying His turn, your turn is going to happen. It is going to happen. You don't know when, but it's going to happen. You don't know the certain time. But how much more should you be prepared? How much more should it change the way you live? Knowing with certainty. The wise believers knows that it's not a chance thing. He doesn't know whether Christ will come today or He doesn't know whether He will be called home to Christ today through His death. But regardless, He wants to be prepared. And He makes changes in His life. The ungirded mind and the ungirded life, the unlit lamps, He addresses those needs. You know, in verse 41, Peter hears all this and he begins to wonder. And he's been feeling pretty good. He's been with Christ now for almost uh, two years. He's feeling pretty good about his security and his relationship with Christ. He's heard lots of affirmations about the grace of God and the love of Christ. He's heard Christ talk about heaven and the glories of the kingdom that would come. He's even anticipated that he might be in an exalted seat, maybe able to sit at the right hand as James and John were battling for. Peter was jealous with the other disciples when he heard that. And so he wonders whether or not he should really have that much concern for the afterlife. I mean, is there really any threat for him? He's a believer, right? He knows Christ. So he says in verse 41, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else? You called us aside. You may remember in verse 22, he would begin to speak to his disciples. And so Peter's wondering, he's just us here. Don't you, in, don't, don't you intend to say this to everyone else? He was expecting the answer of, no, this is not for you, Peter. This is for everyone else. The details of Jesus' answer we'll have to get into next week. But the bottom line is this. I don't want you to miss this right now. This was spoken to the disciples. This was spoken to them. Jesus' answer will be essentially, 
this as we get into it in verses 42 and following. His answer is this, Peter, this was spoken especially to you. Especially to you. Because to whom much is entrusted, much is required. Listen, as a believer, you cannot afford not to be prepared. You cannot afford not to be heavenly minded. Not to fix your hope on the return of Christ. Not to gather in your wandering thoughts. You cannot afford not to invest with your time, with your material resources, with your priorities, with your heart. You cannot invest, I mean, you cannot afford not setting your priorities on the kingdom. Jesus is coming. It's been the hope and the eager anticipation of every believer for all of time. Those righteous and devout people like Simeon, they were righteous and devout because they had their fixed hope on the consolation of Israel, the redemption of God's people. And for them, it was a purifying hope. It was a hope that caused them to constantly gird up the loins of their mind for action. But woe to those, Jesus says, woe to those who are presumptuous, thinking it won't happen anytime soon. Jesus doesn't want you to vainly imagine that the consequences of that foolish decision will be small. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. We'll come back next week and look at one more incentive that Jesus gives to us out of this passage. Father, we read the examples of these great saints, both from Luke's Gospel, from Hebrews 11. We read of Paul's description of genuine faith that fixes its hope on the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. We read of the Apostle John who speaks about the purifying hope The Apostle Peter, who tells us to gird up the loins of our mind and fix our hope. We know, Lord, every great saint through the ages lived by this rule. We cannot miss the message of Your Scripture. Keep us then from foolishly and vainly thinking we won't be held accountable. Lord, we want to be ready When you come back, we want you to have great delight and great joy in us. Give us then your grace, the filling of your Spirit, that we would redeem the time. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.